Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us, in chapter 22, Abraham was tested. Who was he tested? He was tested to see if God is number one in his life. He's been tested all the way through, as, as we've seen here in the book of Genesis. But here came a big test, a test that said, God said to him, Will you offer up your son, your only son, Isaac, to me on the altar? That is a test. But he passed that test. He was willing to be obedient to God. Whatever God said, he was willing to do, and he was ready to follow through with it. But like many times when God tests us, he stops us from having to complete that because he's just testing. And then he brings in the sacrifice or he brings in the situation where he takes care of it for you. But it brings us to the point, to the edge of saying, is he number one in our life or he is not? Or is it just Christian talk when we say God is number one in his life? But you'll be tested on that faith. You'll be tested to see. And Abraham was tested and he passed that test. He was willing to do whatever God told him to do, however he wanted him to do it, and he did it. But God stopped him, and if you remember, he provided a lamb just as he was about to put the knife into Isaac's heart. Today in chapter 23, we're going to see Abraham is tested once again. And this time, it's going to be a different test, but one that is going to be uh, just as impactful. We're going to see his wife is going to die, Sarah's going to die, and go on to be with God before him. What a test that will be. Some have been brought through that test where they've lost a spouse, they've lost a child, they've lost the fact that God called them earlier than that. And we'll see here Abraham will be tested and he will have to deal with the, the, the subject of grief and be tested through grief because he lost his wife, Sarah. Now, if we see here in verse 1 of chapter 23, Sarah lived 127 years. And these were the years of the life of Sarah. This is the first place we see anywhere in the scripture where a, a woman's age is given. Any man will tell you right here, at a very young age, you are taught very early on, don't ask a woman about her age. It is no gouda. You're not going down a path that you should be going down. But God has no problem putting it in words for us to see after all these years what Sarah's age was. 127 if you remember, Abraham is 10 years older. He is 137 at this point. And later on, we will see here in the next chapter or so, we see when Abraham dies, he is 175 years of age, which means he lived 30, about 38 years beyond his wife Sarah. That God still had a plan and a purpose for his life for 38 more years before he took him. But here Abraham had to deal with grief. 
as we will see in how he handles grief. Very brief uh, chapter day, but very important. Because through death, it brings about a subject called testimony, of someone's testimony or someone's life story. And a life story, is, a life testimony is played out here in the life of Sarah and also of Abraham because what do people see in their lives? How do they react and respond in certain situations in their life? You remember Sarah's life is a testimony because she is, was a good wife to Abraham and a good mother to Isaac we see in this scripture. So much so that as we see God working in Sarah's life over these last several chapters, she was Sarai, in which means she had a tongue about her. She could say things maybe she shouldn't be saying when she was saying it, but through the process of God refining her, added an H to her name, as we call it, but added a name, changed her name to Sarah, which means princess. Showing and reflecting of God's work in her life. We also see that Sarah is listed by God in the heroes and the heroines of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. What a testimony that God had put in a word forever, his word, that she was a, uh, a hero or heroine, I say, of the faith. She was a godly, faithful woman. What a testimony. And the apostle Paul, Peter named her as a good example of a Christian wife should be and to follow. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. She was not only beautiful outwardly, but her character and who she is, a godly woman, was more beautiful inwardly, even so. What a life testimony here at the end of her life. And we see in the scriptures, even today as we study his word, we see clearly that God wanted us to know that she was a good and a great example of a Christian wife and a Christian mother. Nowhere in the Bible do we see where God took Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example of a godly woman in a, in a way of a godly mother or a godly wife as an example. He doesn't highlight Mary as Christian wives, this is the example for you. This is an example as a mother. No, he uses Sarah as that example in our scripture. And you can see that even in verses 3 through 6 of 1 Peter 3. The apostle Paul used her to illustrate the grace of God in the life of a believer in Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 31. That she had a grace that God poured out grace upon her and there was a grace, a, a, a part of her life that you could see that God was pouring through her. A life's testimony of God's work in one's life who is yielded to or obedient to God. Ladies, I encourage you to study the scriptures and allow God to work in your life that you too would be seen as a testimony to your children and to your husband and to those around looking at your life as one of, one of grace, of, of love, of, 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 of one that was of, of just an example of being obedient to God's word in your role as a wife, in a role as a mother, in a role as a, as a sister to another. 
Let God do that work. Let that testimony be yours as well. But here in verse 2, we're going to see Abraham's testimony and handling a major test called grief or the loss of his wife here before him. So here in verse 2, it says, So Sarah died in Kareth Arba, that is uh, uh, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So here we are, Abraham. We don't know scripturally here, solidly confirmed, was Abraham somewhere else and then heard that Sarah died? And then that's why he says he came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her? Or that he was there beside her but still had to come back and, and, and it was mourning? It doesn't matter either or. He, we see the love between the husband and the wife here. We see the impact of the loss of his fellowship with his wife. His loss of companionship with his wife. And how much that mourn that grieved him of his loss. Here is the very first place we see in the scriptures of mourning or weeping in the scriptures. And I find that very fascinating because why wasn't there, for some reason, God didn't show that there was weeping and crying by um, Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden. There's no signs of weeping and crying in the morning there. there. When they lost their child, Remember the fight between Cain and Abel? They lost their child. Did we see any weeping and crying mentioned in the scripture there? No. How about the flood? When all the, if no one got out of the ark except for Noah and his family and everyone's outside. No mention of the weeping and crying that must have taken place outside of the destruction that took place across the world. But here between a husband and wife, God brings about what takes place naturally and what God has given us to use to grieve, and that is the loss between the husband and the wife. That relationship God chose to show the weeping of a man, of a godly man, for the loss of his fellowship with his wife. It's interesting that they find themselves in Hebron. God brings it to light that they're in the Hebron area, which means fellowship. This fellowship between him and his wife has been broken. And there's mourning and there's, and there's, there's grieving that's taking place in the heart of, uh, of Abraham. Though Abraham has, is feeling a, a loss, a deep sadness for the loss of his wife, grief is set in. He was not afraid to mourn. He was not, God was not, made sure it's clear for us to see him as a godly man grieving for his wife. But we also, we do not see him grieve as he has no hope. As in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 says, we don't grieve with like people who have no hope. If as a non-believer, they grieve, they grieve because they have no hope. They don't have that promise and understanding that they can see their loved ones once again in heaven. They don't understand what took place or what's happened to their loved one because of the fact, because of that, they have this grief of no hope. But as a believing uh, uh, person, as a, a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know where our hope stands. We don't grieve like a non-believer. We grieve the, the, the fact that there's a loss of fellowship, but we also have this promise and hope of knowing that we're going to see our loved one once again. 
So we don't curl up and, and fall into a, a fetal position and stay there and grieve for, for days and years and going on. Grieving, I always use the definition of grieving as the remembering over time with less pain. Because that's what grieving is. You never get over it. But it never stays in the pain stage. It ends up gradually subsiding that pain. And it becomes the rejoicing of the fact that you will see them once again. Or the fact that God brings to back to memory of the good things and not of the bad things or the lost. And he comforts you in your time of pain. So here we find Abraham. He's mourning. He's weeping. He's losing this fellowship. It's the first time we've seen in the scriptures even talking about it. But understand that grieving is one of the God's gifts to you and I of those to heal the brokenhearted. That you are to naturally grieve and to understand that God, ha there is a separation, that God can come in and comfort the hearts of a brokenhearted person. Even through the time of death. Sarah died in faith. We see that in Hebrews 11, verse 11. And that God, Abraham knew she was in the Lord's care. Even in the, those in the Old Testament knew those that had a relationship with God. God's people knew that they had, could, would, would receive from God even after death. They would see the people. And, and Psalm 73, 24 talks about that God's people knew that God would receive them. For the believers to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord, Philippians 1, verses 21 through, and through 23, and 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. So knowing that when you're absent from the body, you're in the presence of the Lord as a believer, you have this understanding as you approach death or you see death in front of you, there is no fear of death. Matter of fact, we rejoice in the fact that we are going to be absent from this body that's decaying daily, and we will know that we will receive a new body when we're in the presence of the Lord. See, death is a great enemy, we see in the scripture. And it will continue to be an enemy right to the very end, but that is the last thing that is destroyed, as you know the scripture. God destroys the enemy of death at the very end. And there'll be no more death. So Abraham, we'll see here, does not mourn indefinitely. He accepts the loss. He accepts the understanding that God is in control and God has taken his wife before him. And everything we see here now in verse 3, things change. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead. He was mourning. He was down. He was on his knees or whatever position he may be prostrated right out completely straight out mourning and grieving but then there comes a time where he must get up and you must do what God has continued to ask you to do according to his plan for your life you must get up so he stood up we see here before his dead and he spoke to the sons of heat saying in verse 4 I am a foreigner and a visitor among you Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So we see here a few things that I, I find fascinating. First of all, he gets up and he realizes he needs to bury the body of Sarah. 
But if you look at the scripture here, he didn't say he got up before his his before Sarah. And he didn't ask for a burial place for Sarah, but for my dead, meaning he had a vision of knowing that it was this place that he was about to select was not just for Sarah's body, but it was going to be for his family burial site. And we will see that in the, in the scriptures later on where God actually, we see others being buried there. But here he's sitting there, he says, I'm a foreigner, I'm a visitor among you. He recognizes he's in a land that that is controlled by the Hittites. It's this it's Canaan, so it's the land of Canaan. But what's fascinating is Abraham doesn't take this time to try to negotiate in a way that he's in control. He's sitting there recognizing, "I'm a visitor. I'm a foreigner. I'm in your land, and I need to take this body, and I need to put it somewhere. It's out of my sight." He wasn't sitting there. Oh, Sarah, I need to put you into ashes and put you on, the, on, a, uh, on my shelf in my house the rest of my life. Or I need to have my tomb sit right outside our door somewhere. No, he says it has to be out of his sight, meaning he recognized Sarah wasn't there. Sarah wasn't in that body. Sarah was with God. He was in I, I, Abraham's bosom, but he was, you know, he, he was out. It wasn't her in that body any longer. And we see here, as he's looking, he says, I'm a foreigner. Even though God, we saw in earlier chapters, you have been given the the land of Canaan. You own all of this. I'm giving this all to you and your generation upon generation. He didn't sit there and say, okay, let me see how I can get this across to the Hittites. Okay, I'm here. I moved in this area. Oh, by the way, God gave me this land, and it's my land, so I can pick whatever I want to for the burial. He understood he wasn't going to help them understand what God was doing. Because what are they going to say? Well, show me. Where where, where do you own it? Who told you you own it? God told me I own it. Well, they're not going to, as non-believers, they're not going to understand that. And he didn't even try to get them to understand it. But Abraham, being a faithful man, understood that. He knew that this land was given to him by God and God himself. And that he didn't have to worry about this. He just knew this was going to be the land. So he could take steps, not to go back to the Ur of Chaldees, but I'm going to be right here because this is where God has me, and I'm going to get a, a plot. I'm going to get a cave, and we'll see. And this is where I'm going to have my, my wife buried, the body buried, and, and others. I know this is going to be a place where I'm going to be living. I don't have to worry about being kicked out. So he says as a foreigner, as a visitor to him, he humbly comes to him and says, give me property for a burial place. Well, we will see here that this next section is is all about negotiations. And it's a Bedouin methodology that they use to to barter, to negotiate. It was called give to give kind of bartering. I'm going to give, I feel like I'm giving and giving you and giving you. And they'll kind of give it back and they kind of work their way to an agreement, as we will see, taking place in front of us. But, but Abraham recognized that this is the land that God had given him. We know in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, that even Moses knew and commanded knowing that Israel would be in this land. Even King David, David himself knew this was the land that God had given him and he was going to be dwelling in that. First Chronicles 29, 14 and Psalm 39, 12. 
So there's no question that God put in the hearts of godly men that this is the land they were going to be in and dwell in. And of course, that's exactly what we saw. But Abraham also understood as a foreigner, a visitor, that this land was given to him by God, but it also that he was a sojourner. He was only temporarily going to be here because his, real, his home was in heaven. He knew this was temporary, that when he's going to be absent from his body, he'll be present with the Lord. We even see that for us ourselves, we understand, that our present body is temporary. And that one day we will receive a glorified body like the body that Jesus Christ now has in heaven. We see that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Because we know that, we are, that our citizenship is in heaven. And that we eagerly wait to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. So our mindset is not about what can I get as a house today or property today. Those things are temporary. It must be in our minds because heaven is where we're going. Go back and read Philippians 3.20. Underline it. Remind yourself when you're about to purchase things and make decisions. If you're trying to make something of yourselves today with the stuff you buy, your, your, your mindset needs to shift and understand, yes, we need a, a roof overhead. If God provides that and he orchestrates that, praise the Lord. But it cannot own you. It cannot be your identity. Your bank accounts, every, that is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ and you're a citizen of heaven. And it's only a matter of time when he will take us out of this body Take us home to heaven and give us a new body as he's promised. And I hope that is your mindset as well as you have a light touch on things of this world. You're just a pilgrim and a visitor in this present world. And we see that 1 Peter 1.1 and 1 Peter 2.11 that God mentions. Now he sits there, Abraham, he puts out the fact that he needs a place. And in verse 5, and the sons of Heat answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of your burial places, of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. So we see a testimony, a life's testimony of Abraham. We see that the sons of Heat. These Hittites, these non-believers, these, these, these pagans are looking at the life of Abraham who's dwelling in their area and calls him Lord and calls him a mighty prince. A mighty prince meaning in the Hebrew language a prince of God. So they're looking at his life and saying they see this is a, God, a man that lives for his mighty God. That even non-believers can look at this godly man and say, there's something about you. You're a prince of God. You are a child of God. There's something about your life. What a testimony. And that should be ours as well. As a believer, non-believer should look at your life and say, you are a godly person. You live for God. You, your actions, your words line up with what I understand who God is. And Abraham's testimony was clear here. 
And that not only that he, they saw him as a high, a, a very important, a, 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 a godly life testimony in front of them and respected him. That they said, you can pick the choicest of burial places. They weren't restricting him of where to pick from. That he could pick wherever they wanted to do. And so how did Abraham respond? Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land the sons of heat. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron and the, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. So Abraham, he's sitting there. If you, if you understand how things work in that time, people would, the city would be surrounded by a protection of a wall. A wall protected the, the community for foreigners and people coming in and out of their city. They had to be protected. And there was a, a way to get in. There was a funneling to come in. And if you've been there before to Israel, which we're going here in a week, praise the Lord. There's a few of us going. I'm going to be able to see the, the, uh, the architectural digs where you could see where the rooms were. Because when you started to go under the wall in the gate, you could see the places where the leaders of that city dwelt and they made decisions and they brought they came and people had to get things to be judged by and they they watched over at the gates that's where the leaders were and they were in these rooms and there was people from the city there so there were witnesses of what took place in the order of the of the city there was no behind the scene door closure kinds of stuff everything was right there at the city gate so here they are. You see Abraham there at the city gate. You can see the sons of heat there. There are people from that city there going on. And they told him, Abraham, you can pick the choicest of burial places. So Abraham puts it out and says, yeah, meet with Ephron. You guys go meet with Ephron, a guy from that community, and ask him. He's the son of Zoar. Ask him if I can have the cave of Machpelah. Pelah. And uh, Pile, I'm sorry, Pile, and which was his cave. It was on the western, I believe, on the western side of Hebron, on the, uh, the, the, the mountainside there, the hillside. And that's where I would like to have my, the burial of Sarah. Now, it's interesting. He asked them to go talk to Ephraim. But we see that in his response here, on this, this western slope of Hebron, that, that must have been the choicest of burials that he probably picked. But look at the gift, or look at the response here in verse 10. We see that now Ephron dwelt among the sons of, of Heat, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heat, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, well, was Ephron part of the group there? Was it a large enough group where Abraham didn't really know who Ephron was or he didn't see him? Or Ephron, they went and grabbed Ephron. Hey, Ephron, Abraham wants your cave, so you've got to get to the city gate so we can work this out and negotiate terms here. However that played out, Ephron shows up himself and comes and sits there in his response here. Look in verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. 
Then he says it again. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. And a third time here in verse 11, he says, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, understand in the negotiations in these times, he wasn't really saying to Abraham, you can have it for free. That's not what he's saying. In the way they negotiate, is like they, they act like they give everything for free, but then they, you know, they naturally know that we're not going to get it for free. They negotiate back, say, no, 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 no. That we're, and you kind of counteract here. Now, notice here, Ephraim said, Abraham just asked for the cave. But Ephraim said, wait, 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 no, no. I give you the field and the cave. The cave is in this field, and you're going to get both. Abraham didn't ask for that. He just needed a burial place. But look at how he, how he handles this. How as a godly man, how he handles the situation here at hand. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of land. He humbled himself again. Again, remember, this is a wealthy man. God is in his life doing incredible things. But he humbles himself in front of the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, and in front of all these witnesses, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. <laughs> so you see how the negotiations finally getting coming out here. No, 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 no. I just need that. No, no, you should have both. No, no, no. I, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'll give it. No, 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 no. I want to pay the money. And finally, they get to the terms. 400 shekels. Now, many commentators, many of the historians believe that it was way overpriced, which typically that's what they did. They aimed high and the fact that they were going to negotiate that price down to something eventually going back and forth. But notice what Abraham does now. When Abraham says, eh, it's 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. Well, Abraham now in verse 16 answers. Abraham listened to Ephraim. And then Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephraim, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heat, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So Abraham listened. But Abraham just knew he needed this burial place. And that he humbly knew that this was not his land. It wasn't in his name. Only in God said it was his land. But it was their property. It was this man, Ephron's cave that he was asking for. And even though they went back and forth and back and forth in this negotiations, Abraham, you see, that he was just being courteous. He was being fairly and, and prudent. All these characteristics of this godly man, Abraham, dealing with this man to get this plot so that he could bury the dead. It reminds you of a Philippians 2.3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Did we not see that play out here in Abraham's life? He's not conceited. He's, he's humbled. 
He's not looking to get something over someone else. And I'm, oh, I'm going to negotiate better than you, and I'm going to get a better deal, and I'm going to make sure you lose on this deal. And when we part, if you're not liking it, it's your big deal. I win, you lose. No, that's not how a godly man thinks, nor a godly man deals, especially even with non-believers or believers. Because, again, Abraham knew this was all temporary. This is just, it, it, that's, that's what he asked for. That's what he's got. That's what he put out there. I'm going to pay for it. Let's, it, it. Obviously, God gave him peace about it and said, this, was, this is right and good. Let's move forward. And he paid the money out. And he, he left there with a good testimony with Ephraim and all the witnesses of that city of how he dealt with it. He didn't deal with it where he, it caused a problem within the city. He was gracious and he thought of others in this situation. And you know, in scripture, this is the only place we see that Abraham owns any land. Nowhere else do we see in the scripture where we see here that uh, he, it, something is, land is actually purchased and put in his own, in own name. Now, he did not take Sarah back to Ur, where they came from. But he also understood that he needed to have a, bo- a proper body, uh, proper burial for that body. Because he recognized that God values the whole person. He values the soul of a person. He values the body that he gave that person. He, so the spirit that he has given that person. He values the person as a whole. But many times people don't recognize and understand and gets confused sometimes. And I'll touch on the fact that when death happens, and I mentioned before and give you scripture, the fact that as a believer today, absent from the body, you're in the presence of the Lord. But the question always is, what is going to happen with our bodies uh, when they get buried or you know, somehow, some way your body got destroyed in some way. I mean, it's not even recognizable, but the ashes or whatever was put back in in, uh, in, in a, a, some form of burial, if you're able to do that. But we have to understand that God is going to take your soul and your spirit, and then what happens when do you get the new body? What will that new body look like? Now, I don't know exactly what the new body looks like. I just know that God, um, resurrection is not reconstruction. God does not reassemble the dust of the body to restore the body of our, in our present state that we find ourselves in today. What he does, though, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 38, that God promised us a new body. That as Paul makes it clear that there is this continuity but not identity between the old and the new body. And I'll give you this illustration that he gives us for us to help us understand what, that, what he means by that. And the illustration is the seed. The seed dies, it is buried, it decays, but the seed does not come back as the seed looks like. It doesn't come back as exactly the same identity. It comes back as what? A beautiful flower once it blooms. So God gives us that same illustration that, yes, this body is going to die, it's going to decay, but when we go to heaven, we're going to get a new body, and the new body will be new. 
Somehow we know there's a continuity because people were going to recognize each other in, this, in the heavenlies. But the body itself is not going to, because many times as he says, you'll be no more weeping and crying in heaven. If you remember the scriptures, we see here today, the very first time there's weeping and crying here with Abraham with the loss of his wife. The last time we see tears going away, we see in Revelation chapter 12, when God wipes away the last tears and there's no more weeping and crying ever. Because there's just pure joy in the presence of God. Now, some of us have aches and pains with this old body. So I know God is not going to take this old body of mine and give it to me in heaven and continue with the aches and pains. <laughs> so somehow it's going to be new and it's going to be good. I just don't know all the details. It's a mystery to me. And so I'm looking forward to what that's going to be like. I just know that it's a good, I have a good, good father, don't you? And that he's going to give us a new body that's going to be good. And it's going to be right. And it's going to be just like the body that Jesus has in heaven. Now remember, when he was resurrected from the dead, what did he do when he was with that resurrected body? He did things that we can never do today. From one point to the next point in the twinkle of an eye, passing through walls. It's amazing what possibly what it is going to be like when we get our new bodies. But here in verse 17, we continue here and it says, so the field of Ephron which was in Machpelieh, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were deeded. So sure enough, he bought the, the land that has trees, the cave that's in the land. He just exactly what they said to do. He didn't argue with them. He paid the money. He received it. He got what he needed to have to bury the dead. And then Abraham in verse 18 said to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heath before all who went in at the gate of his city. So you could picture him in this room and all the witnesses and watching this all played out and how it's going to play out. There's no nothing but goodness coming from this, this discussion and a great life's testimony that Abraham was playing out here in front of all these uh, non-believers. And verse 19, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelia before Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heath as property for a burial place. So we see here at the end of this chapter that God is doing a work. He's doing a work through Abraham, even in a tragedy of loss of your life. Do you realize there's a 100% statistic that there will, we will die? I now move in the more of a direction that God is going to actually rapture us out of here and not have to physically die. I really think... God is coming back soon and very soon. And I think in our generation, I think we're going to see that. That's my hope. That's my, my prayer. That's my, my, the promise I'm hoping for. But most likely, one of us or all of us have experienced death of someone next to you, near, close to you, or will. How will you handle the grief? Will you keep your eyes on promises of God will you turn to him 
as you're grieving and you're weeping and crying for the loss of that fellowship with that loved one, that, that companionship that you will, you will so seriously and deeply miss, will you too get up and worship God and go about what God has called you to do according to the plan he has for your life, for the remaining of the time that he has already predetermined for your life? Will you get up and will you worship him and continue to serve him after that grieving period? As Abraham done, has, has done in front of us. And we will see as we continue in the book of Genesis that God is going to use Abraham in a mighty way, again, for another 38 years. But God will continue to bring back some of the family back to this cave, this site, as we see that um, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 9, Isaac, along with his brother Ishmael, his, is actually his half-brother Ishmael, actually comes back in the picture here and actually buries Abraham here in the same cave. And then we see Isaac and Rebekah were both buried here in Genesis chapter 20 or chapter uh, Genesis chapter 49 verse 31. And then Jacob buries Leah in Genesis 49:31 and then finally we see Joseph bury Jacob here in chapter 50 verse 13. Here in Hebron, here in this cave, this cave, or the tomb, this great tomb of patriarchs that they find themselves. Now, even today, that cave and that ability to see the graves uh, buried in that cave is still present today in, in the area of Hebron uh, that we have what is named here. But it's under Muslim control. It's under a mosque, and you're not able to get in there. It was then been many, 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 many years. Uh, since uh, the, the one person who, I guess, worked with a sultan and convinced them to allow him to see it firsthand. And that was like the first time in 600 years that they were able to, since, uh, you know, during that period of time that anyone had even been in and around that cave. But yes, it's real. Yes, it is according to the scriptures. Yes, you can see it today. If we were able to be allowed to go in and see it. But in closure, as Christians... Do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have been born again as a Christian. To a living hope. To a living hope that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead we see in 1 Peter 1.3. And we are continuing to look for that blessed hope, that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that given to us clearly in Titus 2.3. Now, if anyone here, I may not be aware of it, but if anyone here is grieving, we pray for you. We, we want to know that you're grieving if we're not aware, because we want to come alongside and pray for you and with you. But we want to encourage you as a brother and sister. Seek the Lord with all your heart and mind, soul, and strength. Because he is the great comforter. He is the great healer of a broken heart. He is the one that's going to lift you up and give you the strength physically and, and spiritually to continue to move on with your loss. 
that, that will remind you of the promises of the fact that as your loved one has moved on, that you too will see him or her once again in their new, in their new body. That's our hope. That's our promise. That's where we can have joy and peace even through the time of such grief and loss. Do you believe?